Welcome to the Changing State of Talent Acquisition, where your hosts, Graham Thornton and Martin Pred, share their unfiltered takes on what's happening in the world of talent acquisition today. Each week brings new guests who share their stories on the tools, trends, and technologies currently impacting the changing state of talent acquisition. Have feedback or want to join the show? Head on over to changestate.io. And now, on to this week's episode. All right, and we're back for season three of the Changing State of Talent Acquisition podcast. Marty, it's been, hey, a, buddy. It's been, it's been, been a while. A while. <laughs> what, yeah, what have you been uh, doing? What have you been up to? Well, honestly, I don't even remember the last time we recorded episodes. And uh, since then, I know I've moved across the country and I live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So, uh, yeah, it's been a while. I've missed this. Back to the salt of the earth Midwesterner again. So that's good. Back to your roots. Yep. You know, I, I would never have guessed that I would come back here. I think I don't think anyone would have had that bet place that I'd go back to the Midwest, but here I am. Life's funny. Well, you know, I mean, I guess it's it's not that we didn't want to do more episodes of the podcast, but busy's good. That's, you know, what they normally say. So, you know, we, we've been busy and, uh, you know, team's been growing. Clients have been growing. But, you know, you know, we said, hey, you know, it's another year. We probably need to get deliberately back to, you know, chatting to some more folks in TA. And yeah, super excited to be back in here with you, man. So. Yes, likewise, likewise. Now now you're across the country, so, you know, now now you have to do this, you know, because it's our way to stay a little bit more connected, too, so it'd be great. Well, where do you want to start? I've got some ideas, so beginning of the year. Hit me, what do you got? Bunch of technology trends, bunch of trends in TA, long list. So uh, I was reading the aptitude research trends, you know, of course, number one, not a surprise. Everyone's talking about skills, skills skills-based hiring. You know, focusing on skills is, you know, the continued trend to watch. You know, that's been on there for, you know, it seems to be a couple of years at this point. And a lot of our guests in the last couple of years have been focused on skills-based hiring. You know, I don't know if you read that article, but one thing that I think is missing, and I'm, I'm kind of upset about it, is automation, you know, we're missing an opportunity in automation during the hiring process itself. You know, and I think you know, we had a client that brought this up maybe four years ago. And he said, like, hey, like, you know, anyone can get leads and that's fine. But like, how can you more effectively move people through the process? And I think that's one area where, you know, if we're talking about trends, predictions for 2023, what we're going to see, there are, there's going to be much more investment in we're removing humans from the equation. What can we do to move candidates through the process? Can, can you give me some examples? Treat me like I'm an idiot, which I may be sure. Yeah. How, how, <laughs> I mean, I, I like what you're saying, but like, how, give me some specific examples. How do you, what, how could automation help specifically from the candidate's point of view? So I think, you know, if we're talking about automation through the process, you know, think about when people go through and apply and they sit in an ATS. You know, we used to go through in Taleo as an ATS and look at all the various, you know, steps and statuses that candidates could go through or sit in. And, you know, I think one example, we found something like 205 different Taleo statuses where a candidate can be. It's like, well, like, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe not all of those are super important, you know, and it's certainly not super important when you're going into reporting, right? So candidates are passing through processes, you know, so maybe it's, hey, someone applies an ATS, you know, initially they, you know, are quickly shortlisted yes or no as if, if they're a candidate that can move forward. And, you know, the candidate knows that they're a candidate to move forward. Maybe it's, you know, moving people more quickly through an assessment process and re-engaging folks, you know, who haven't taken an assessment 
Or, you know, similarly, if you know, you're going through a backroom check or you haven't completed your onboarding piece, you know, it is moving people through, you know, the onboarding, the background check process. So maybe not recruiting uh, or talent acquisition in general, but related to filling classes quicker. I think that we're underestimating the amount of fall off in candidates who are not moving through the whole recruiting process quickly. And I think, you know, ATSs are you know, probably mostly built for, you know, the candidate processing aspects to be a manual piece. And I think more TA teams are getting hung up in the processing of candidates. And I think a lot more of that can be automated in a smart way. Does that help answer that question a bit? I think so. So you're saying that candidates are stuck in any number of, maybe it's 218 or maybe it's a more sane number, but either way, some people are stuck in these different statuses waiting on a human being to click uh, remind them or send them on to the next phase. And then sometimes the human being doesn't get to it quickly or maybe never gets to it. And there's an opportunity to have a computer do that work where we can automate it and reduce the drop-off by simply not requiring a human to intervene. Is, am I getting it? You're getting it. And like now as we're talking through this and thinking through you know other you know, opportunities there and like boy, maybe it's not just on the client-facing side too. How many times have we talked to recruiting teams when you know hiring managers just aren't getting back to candidates with interviews too? So like, yeah. I think it's not just a push of pushing a candidate through. You know, I think there's probably opportunities to help push candidates through by leaning on some of the internal or you know company members that are involved in the hiring process of it too. So is this a matter of just leveraging automation that exists within existing ATSs, or is this another layer that needs to be put on top, or maybe it's a complicated question? Yeah, I think it's. Pro- I think we're seeing more and more of an open ecosystem across all these ATSs. You know, I, you know, maybe let's try to rewind what four years ago when we started this. Right, remember when we started using Zapier to automate, you know, processes? <laughs> were you shaking over there? <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah. We used to use Zapier. It's kind of just, it's just a lightweight integration, really, right? So, you know, it's taking a piece of data and pushing it somewhere else or pushing something through. And, you know, you use Zapier to push candidate data certain places. You know, you can write data through a webhook. Like, you can move things from one spot in an ATS to another spot in an ATS using automation, using tools like a Zapier. And so... You know, what we did four years ago was, you know, Zapier was, I don't know, I think it was kind of new or newer. It was new to me. Now everything's, everything's automated. Like, you know, think of all the apps that you can plug into you know, today. So I think it's similar concepts. Yeah. How can you move candidates through a bit quicker? So if, if you think of one area that, you know, we're missing out, you know, it's definitely automation. You know, if you think about some of these job boards too, you know, everyone's trying to make it easy to capture candidates um, too. So again, like, you know, the battle is going to be how quickly can you move candidates through the process, you know, because especially in high volume, you know, candidates just aren't sitting on the market that Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's my speech on automation. You know, like, I know another area like you've been busy in, right? It's like, all right, we do a lot of stuff with high volume. You know, we're definitely hearing more and more, like our initial hypotheses, hypothesis around the importance of investing in brand is kind of, come much more, uh, bubble up much more to the top in conversations with clients recently. So high level, where are your thoughts? Where, where are we see, are we seeing a resurgence and an interest in employer brand as 
something that is valuable or important to clients? Like, why do people talk to us a little bit more often about the EV Prius this year? What's going on? Yeah. What are we missing? Yeah. Well, I mean, if our our workload is any indicator, and I'm not sure it is, you know, it seems like people are taking employer brand more seriously. We've certainly been busy doing it. You know, we often get asked the question, and this isn't a new question, but I do think it's being asked more often lately, is, well, how do I make the case to the executive team, you know, that what's the ROI or return on investment of an employer brand project? And sometimes these projects are quite expensive. You know, they can be six figures and no one has, or often organizations don't have a line item for employer brand projects because they're kind of a one-off expense, you know, something you're going to do once in a while, but not every year. And I think it's interesting because my sense is that intuitively everyone kind of knows that there's a real value to a brand. I mean, one way I like to think about it and and they'll put it to clients, which may be oversimplifying, but I really think it illustrates the point is, you know, say you were asked to enter into a recruiting competition where you had to fill a hundred open seats and, you know, you're competing against someone else and you had the exact same recruiting budget and you're filling the exact same roles and you're able to pay the people the exact same amount and the benefits package and total rewards package is the same. And the one variable that you do have control over is the company that you're trying to fill the seats for. And one of the companies is Apple and one of them is Acme Computer Company. And if you ask people, which one of those companies would you rather enter that competition for? I think most people would very clearly say Apple right out the gate. And the question is why? Well, there's some value to having that Apple brand on that job posting. It makes it easier. It makes it cheaper. It makes it more efficient to recruit, to fill those 100 open roles because uh, people know what Apple means in the marketplace. They have a certain impression of what Apple represents and how it treats its employers or employees rather. And that is the value of the brand. So at that very kind of high level, I think everyone says, oh, of course there's value to the brand. But then executives come in and they ask you and you want to quantify it. And, you know, I think that's a, a little bit trickier. You know, I spent my background, of course, in the consumer branding space. And this is um, a question that has kind of vexed consumer brand people for a long time. Does the Coke brand have a, a value to it? I think the answer is clearly yes, but how would you quantify it? It's not a straightforward activity. You know, some people quantify brand as pricing power. So, you know, we're selling sugar water with Coke. Uh, what's the pricing power of the, just putting the Coke brand on a can of sugar water? Can they charge 30 cents more for a 12-ounce can than a store brand? Well, maybe that gives you some indication of what the value of the Coke brand is. You know, when we think about the employer brand space, um, I think we're thinking in terms of efficiencies. So one way we encourage our clients to think about employer brand is it's a filter. You know, if you were trying to fill open roles and you have this vast pool of candidates, it's kind of a sorting problem fundamentally. You know, how do we find the needles in this haystack of candidates who are going to be most successful at our organization, happiest, most likely to thrive, most likely to stay with us? Because, of course, the longer people stay with us, the happier they are, uh, the better investment it is for the organization. And one way to go about it is to simply say, if I have a pool of 100 candidates, I'm going to put all 100 through the, of them through an interview have my recruiters try to sort this out. A lot of organizations will do this. I'm not sure it's the most efficient way of going about it. Another way, of course, is to have a strong brand and say, this is what we stand for. Here's what you can expect if you work for us. I mean, this is essentially putting that idea of an employer value proposition front and center and letting candidates self-select, as we would say. 
So if you have 10 candidates, four of them may look at that and say, boy, that's not the kind of company I want to work for. That's four people that you don't have to put in front of your recruiters, four people that you didn't send to a hiring manager, four people that you didn't frankly waste time on because you've already told them what they can expect out of you as an employer. And the remaining six, you know, two of them might really be thrilled about it and really pursuing you and engaging with your recruiters on LinkedIn saying, yeah, this is the kind of place I want to work. And so this is just another example, but it, it's, it's all about efficiency. And, you know, would you rather enter the recruiting marketplace with no filter or would you rather enter the recruiting marketplace with a very clear definition of here's what it's like to work for us and here's what you can expect so people can self-sort and say, wow, this is a great place. This is the kind of place I want to work or eh, maybe not. It doesn't sound like my kind of place. Yeah, so that's it. Like, I'm, I'm really interested in this concept of like, you know, self-selecting in and, and, you know, how do we make sure that people are you know, essentially choosing the right path for them, right? And like, I've used that, you've heard me use that phrase a lot. We think about that in career site design and you know, like how we direct people down the right path when they find an org. But I think it's the also, you know, choosing the right path of what company, you know, resonates with, you know, what you're most drawn to. I wonder if that's, you know, you know, the scenario that you just described, boy, that's so hard to quantify on the executive side. How, how do you, like, how can you actually quantify, well, you can quantify savings time, but like, can we, how do we point to that, you know, as part of an EDP, you know, project or refresh, you know, and then it's not even a question there. I don't think you have an answer. So I mean, you you know, oftentimes the clients that we work with, you know, I gave the example of Apple versus Acme. It's a very extreme example, but oftentimes the clients that we work don't necessarily have a defined brand at all. Apple has a very defined brand. You know, your brand is sort of what the marketplace says it is. It's a certain impression that candidates have that your current and previous employees have. And, and Apple has a very clear brand, but we often work with companies who are not Apple, frankly, uh, and they have, you know, their employees have a certain impression of them, and but the company maybe doesn't know it and they're certainly not doing a great job of getting that message out. And so, you know, I think there's just a real opportunity in just defining the brand in the first place. Like, are you going to get to the level where you have the brand power, the employer brand power, say, of an Apple? No. But if you're starting from a place where we don't even have this defined, we're sending out generic messages to our candidates about, uh, you know, these tired messages about how our employees are most valuable asset and all the other stuff you see on career sites. You're really not putting much of a filter at all on that haystack as I was describing earlier, you know, in fact, you probably are doing yourself a disservice and your recruiters a disservice by putting, by attracting people with these generic messages that maybe they're a good fit for your organization. Maybe they're going to be thrilled about it, but maybe they're not going to be thrilled about it. And what is the cost of tricking someone into coming to your organization by broadcasting these generic messages only to find out six months in that, wow, this place doesn't sound anything like the career site. You know, I mean, I think if you look at it on an individual case-by-case basis, it's really clear how not having a brand and not investing in a strong EVP can cost the organization. Yeah. Is it hard to do on a global way and like put it on a dashboard? I think so. But I do think that there are some organizations that are doing it. You know, as with anything, it's a very, it's a, it's a, a product of what data do we have available and what assumptions do we want to make? Um, it's not going to be an easy back of the ma- napkin kind of calculation. But if you can say, wow, before we implemented our EVP, it cost this much money to recruit or fill a seat. If you think about recruiter time and advertising and training and all of that. And after it, you know, six months after, um, our recruiting costs are down 10%. 
you know, that could be some real savings, especially if you're recruiting at scale. Yeah. You know, one piece you didn't mention, I think might be, in my opinion, one of the underrated aspects of investing in the EVP is retention, right? So, you know, a lot of trends on internal mobility and what people are doing to move people in and around in an organization. But boy, if people, you know, are drawn to your org for a reason that is actually true once they're there, like how much more likely are they to stay longer? And, you know, it's an incredibly competitive labor market. That's not going to come as a shock to anyone. And if, you know, you came to our event with, you know, MZ and Lightcast, you know, earlier this month, it's, it's, you know, it's not going to get any easier to recruit. I think that, you know, retention and anything that companies can do to help retain talent is going to be a key differentiator moving forward. And, you know, boy, having an understanding what your employees care about and maybe, you know, an anecdotal benefit of some of these EVP projects, Marty, is just, you know, understanding the people that work at your organization, what percentage of them are at risk to leave. I guess maybe we're yeah. learning a little bit more about sales. Maybe that's what we should be talking about. Um, <laughs> you know, we, no, I mean, I, I would say... Sell it anyway, project, but, you know. <laughs> in the projects we've done recently, yeah, often that those little nuggets, because we, again, your brand is sort of what your employees say it is, what candidates say it is. You know, it's not this idea that uh, we come up with in a boardroom and say, oh, this sounds like a good thing to say about ourselves. It's what do our employees actually, actually think? And so all of our projects are very research heavy. Obviously, given my background, I have a bias towards that, but I think that is the right way of doing it. And oftentimes we find out like some, un, some hidden problems in the organization as a side benefit of doing an employer brand project. You know, the real goal is what do people think of us as an employer? Part of that is also having an honest look at our liabilities as a brand. You know, where are some areas that we're not doing such a good job? And those are things that we probably want to be honest with to the external market. And then when we think about the internal market, i.e. our employees, um, these are things we can do to address and to ultimately increase improved retention, as you're mentioning. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's great. Well, maybe that's, we'll tweak, we'll tweak some of the messaging on our site, I suppose, you know, as you, you and I both know, we, we don't sell whenever and have a sales team. We just like to talk about the cool stuff that we do and what we're learning. So um, I think that's a pretty interesting approach. Let's pivot a little bit because you shared an article with me that I think, you know, probably ties a little bit into this. And this is, you know, it's that article and we'll put it in the show notes that Washington Post about like AI starting to basically choose or help choose who's getting laid off. And, you know, there's a lot more projects around skills mapping, you know, my, my mind based on what you just mentioned on, um, you know, some of the EVP work we're doing goes to like, boy, how paranoid are employees going to be? sharing their feedback in EVP and brand surveys about how happy they are organization. Does that get you know used to help um, you know pluck them into an algorithm to predict layoffs? But tell me a little bit, you know, what uh, just talk a little bit more about that layoff um, algorithm article. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, um, well, one of the interesting stats from here is this there was a survey they did, 300 human source human resource leaders rather, um, and 98% of them said that they're using software and quote-unquote algorithms to help them make layoff decisions this year. Wow, that's that's a pretty stunning stat, 98%. I'm not sure I completely believe it, but even if it's uh, 78%, it's certainly a lot of people using this. And it does make you think. I mean, if you're, you've seen the headlines about uh, tech layoffs in particular, in some cases we're laying off thousands of people at once. I think it's easy to just look at a headline like that and say, okay, they're laying off a bunch of people, but someone actually has to make the decision. We're cutting our, our payroll by this amount. We're laying off this many people. Who are the people that actually have to get uh, let go? And I don't think that's just an obvious decision. You know, I think it's, a, it's, and so what we're saying here is that we're using computers that were originally used to kind of 
keep an inventory of skills to help us workforce plan and tell people, you know, guide leadership in terms of how we should invest in the future of our employees are now actually being used to predict, you know, maybe who's not performing that well, who doesn't really have the skills that will serve this organization for the next five years. And it's kind of being turned on its head in kind of a negative light and saying, maybe these are the people who we should let go. I don't know how I feel about that. I'd be curious to get your thoughts. I mean, I understand why people are a little bit concerned about it. It seems impersonal. At the same time, you know, if it is truly based on performance, I think most of us would appreciate the idea of living in a meritocracy. The, the people who are not performing well probably should be the ones to go. What do you think? That's a good phrase um, for, for closing the loop on that thought, for sure. So, look, I think the challenge is the data has to be good going in for the decisions to be the right decisions in the scenario you just described, right? So, you know, let's say that we're making decisions based on mapping all your skills in an organization. And uh, if the skills are mapped incorrectly, that is a pretty tough pill. If you're, you know, taking an inventory of skills and you got it wrong, and then you decide to you know, wipe out a swath of employees based on, you know, skills data based on the tools that you're using. So, you know, I'd say it makes it pretty important to have the right tools in place to map out skills and understand your library of employee skills. I think the other piece that is probably more interesting uh, or equally as interesting to me is like, boy, are they connecting the dots to some of this with, you know, is this is this tied into workforce planning where, boy, you know, companies know that, you know, they're going to need, you know, project management skill set is going to be the highest in demand skill, you know, that you know, they're going to need two years from now. Are they as sophisticated where they're planning out, you know, 12, 24 months and saying, boy, you know what? Maybe we can train these, you know, these groups of individuals who today, you know, are customer service folks. And in 12 months from now, we're going to have, you know, projects where, you know, PM experience is super important. Like, you know, are they, are they looking at that from a pipelining perspective, you know, a workforce planning perspective too? But I think, you know, the worry is, you know, there's always the worry with machines. Is it good data in? And, you know, if it's good data in, then I guess it makes sense. But I'd be more interested in seeing, like, okay, once you map out all of these skills, assuming we get the data right, like, how far out can you look? You know, sort of close the loop on, you know, the skills that you do have. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it does make sense. And, you know, it's easy to sit here as someone who's not being laid off and think, oh, what's the problem? But I just can't imagine getting that layoff notice and then, Wondering why. I mean, I think the issue here is transparency. We've talked in the past, I think, about the black box of AI, and we don't really know why some of these machines are making these decisions. And if the answer is, oh, the the algorithm just said that, you know, you aren't likely to be a high performer in the next two years, I don't know how satisfying that would be. And frankly, I think we probably owe our employees a better explanation than that. Yeah, I don't disagree, but um, yeah. Well, look, you know, We've got a lot that we're going to talk about this year. Something, you know, I'm, I'm fairly certain we're going to see a continual theme of a tight labor market making it difficult to recruit. So I'm super interested in diving into some of those topics. You know, I do think, you know, we're also going to hear a lot more about internal mobility and companies investing in their own employees. How do we better retain employees? You know, so super excited about the next, you know, 12 months, eh, 10 and a half months of episodes recognized for February now. Anything that you really want to talk about this year, Marty? Uh, you know, I'm showing Yamran about the brand stuff more and more. I'm, it's always my, you know, favorite topic. But no, I, I think it's a super time, super interesting time to be um, ramping back the podcast back up. 
much rather be doing it in a tight labor market than a, the, the opposite. And, you know, I think now is the time where people who have made investments in brands years ago are really seeing that pay off. You know, there's never a bad time, I think, to invest in your brand. Unfortunately, it is a long game. I don't think you're going to see the ROI, you know, in six months after doing a project. But the brands who have invested years ago, like a, like an Apple, are the ones that are really in a good position to, to weather the storms of this tight labor market. So be su- super interested to talk about that. And anything else you bring on my doorstep, Graham? I wrote down pricing power as it relates to consumer brands and, you know, your Coke example. And I don't have any uh, earth shattering thoughts or opinions on that right now, but um, <laughs> for whatever reason that, you know, that, that, that stands out to me. And I want to think about that from a lens or think about how that, you know, stands out from a lens of, you know, employer brand and, you know, recruitment marketing. Like, I don't think it's just you pay people a lot less. There's like, I don't think, I think, you know, paying people a reasonable salary at this point or, re- you know, <laughs> reasonably higher wage, like no one uh, these days uh, is getting away with underpaying employees for the large part. So I want to think about pricing power. What is, you know, how, what's the parallel to that in recruitment market? Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that too. I, I wish I had a better answer. I mean, the one obvious place to go is recruiting costs and, you know, the, sh- the stronger your brand, the less you have to spend on uh, advertising and probably the more effective each dollar you spend on advertising is. But again, I think that's, again, we're falling into that trap of viewing HR and TA as a cost center, uh, which I know we've complained about in the past. <laughs> I'm not sure that's avoidable, but, you know, that's the closest analogy I can draw to pricing power. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna think through that more because you know more and more all outlets where you advertise your jobs, I think, are giving. I wonder how much less control a brand has in how much visibility you get on some of these sites, some of these quality job boards, you know, social sites, you know, mm-hmm. search engines, and how much of it is just driven by well, how much you willing to spend too, you know. I think it'd be interesting to look at if, boy, if we get access to it, organic <laughs> traffic on some of these sites, some of these boards or wherever, and really just see like, you know, even if you are searching for certain brands, does that come up first or is it someone that paid more money to, to buy that spot? I don't know the answer. We're, we won't go down that rabbit hole today, but you know, I agree that, Hey, brand is more powerful. You will spend less in theory, but boy, I also wonder like how much less at this point. What um, the rules are in yeah. place? We'll see. It's interesting. Anyway. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I I still said I'd rather be in the posi- position of having yeah, people yeah, yeah. wanting to pay to compete with my organic search placement. Uh, I think that's a good, a strong hand to hold, and that that's does demonstrate great. the power of brand. That's a good rebuttal. I'll take that. We'll end with a, a win for Marty. So, um, episode <laughs> one, season three goes to marty all right we'll uh we'll be back next week with a guest our first guest of the year and yeah looking forward to another episode of uh of great episodes with you marty so thanks all right man looking forward to it all right thanks for tuning in as always head on over to changestate.io or shoot us a note on all the social media we'd love to hear from you and we'll check you guys next week